brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Attention all listeners on this frequency, stand by for an important announcement. Welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and others involved in or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen. Coming from the Pacific Northwest studios of Medic to Medic Podcast, it's another episode of Medic to Medic. Hi, it's Steve Cohen. You can reach me by email at medictomedicpodcast at gmail.com. You can download this podcast as well as others at Apple Podcasts, Speaker.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I also want to make a quick announcement that we have a new executive producer of the podcast. Her name is Bailey Bell. She's an eight-week golden retriever, and she joined our family a couple weeks ago. She actually was born on my birthday, so um, she'll make sure that everything goes smoothly on the podcast moving forward. Today, I am joined by Michael Diaz, who's a 31-year-old EMT who works for AMR in Los Angeles County for the past 11 years. He has served as the lead field training officer, associate supervisor, and EVOC instructor. He was elected by his peers to the position of union president uh, back in 2017. Uh, I wanted to talk to Michael because he was featured in an article called The Broken Frontline by Ava Kaufman from the publication ProPublica. So, Michael, welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you cover most of it. I'm a 31-year-old EMT. I've been here in uh, the Los Angeles County branch of American Medical Response. I'm the union president for IEP Local 77, which uh, the IEP is the largest private uh, sector EMS union in the country. Uh, And I head up one of the uh, larger locals here. Um, other than that, I mean, I've, I've just had my myself uh, dedicated to EMS for, for quite a bit of time now, and uh, I've seen how our system 
had some trouble and uh, I try to use my position as union president to do anything I can to try and make things better for EMS, for the community and for my peers. Michael, that's exciting uh, about all the roles that you have, but where did you grow up and how did you get interested in emergency medical services? Yeah, uh, I'm from, I was born in East Los Angeles. Uh, my, my parents moved up to uh, Northern LA County when I was a little younger. Uh, I kind of stumbled into to EMS, to be honest. Uh, I had I had met somebody who, who uh, knew a bunch of EMTs, and just by uh, being around that person for a bit, I kind of, you know, fell into it. I, I found that, you know, it sounded interesting, and it sounded like fun. And, uh, you know, post-9-11 era, that was kind of the thing that everyone was, was going after, uh, you know, seeking either the fire service or any other, you know, civil service. So... I kind of just found myself at a vocational school and, uh, you know, going through the paces. And when I actually started doing the job, I found out that I you know, really, really loved and enjoyed it. Well, my understanding, reading a little bit about you, you were in film school. And what made you decide to pursue film school? And then, you know, you say you just fell into EMS, but you were in film school. Maybe yeah. you're thinking about, you know, since you're in Los Angeles, Hollywood and all that, is that, how'd you get interested in film school? Yeah, I was a cinema and television arts major at uh, Cal State Northridge around the time where the writers were on strike. So the conversation on campus and, you know, with peers was that, you know, film might not be um, a stable career, you know, going into the future. And, uh, you know, foresight, that was totally wrong because, uh, <laughs> you know, social media and everything, the, it, it took off soon after that. And, uh, but, you know, I found myself in emergency medicine. Uh, just because I was seeking, you know, a stable career or, um, you know, something in the healthcare industry, which I felt at the time would have been better for my financial stability going forward. And also, you know, for the level of debt that I could have incurred while in school. What was it like for you to step into EMT school and never been on an ambulance before? Yeah, it was, uh, and I was bright eyed and bushy tailed. I, I was so excited. Um, I, I didn't understand the dynamic. Uh, I just thought that, you know, American Medical Response was almost like a government entity and that uh, that's where I would be working at some point. I, I felt like, you know, this is a career that I could really fall into and, and, and really, you know, set myself up for the future. So the entire time I went through the, the program, you know, thinking that this was going to be the key to a long, you know, and, and fruitful career. And uh, it didn't end up turning out that way, but... Uh, I still found something that I, you know, I really enjoyed and, uh, you know, I, I've stuck to it. Take us back to that. You graduated, become a, a state certified emergency medical technician. What was it like your mm -hmm. first day on the ambulance? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a rude awakening. Uh, there was a lot of frustration in terms of, you know, I, every, every new EMT wants to run the quote unquote good calls or the, or the traumas or, you know, medical emergencies, severe medical emergencies, and uh, realizing that the job was more so centered around uh, caring for non-emergent type situations or, or, you know, more so comforting the community. That was definitely lightning. Uh, after going through a little bit of frustration, you know, you kind of understand that, you know, EMS is much more than just what was painted as. It's more about uh, providing a service for the community in terms of uh, being everything that a patient would need at the time, uh, or even if it's not something severe, being that, that comforting presence or making people feel safe, you know, when they call or, or, or being there for the community. So 
that took a little bit of time to, to understand. And uh, once I started understanding that, I was able to, I feel, grow in, in my role as a patient advocate and, you know, also a caregiver in times of extreme need. How about telling us a little bit about a couple of the calls you, you first uh, experienced? You know, you said your, your eyes were wide open and all of a sudden, uh, you know, things weren't, uh, you know, what they said in class and all, not all lights and siren. But I'm sure you, you encountered some uh, difficult patients and some fun patients. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, any of those? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've had all kinds of some pretty crazy things that not a lot of us want to, you know, relive per se, but they, they range anywhere from a lot of mental health related things, suicide, psychiatric, you know, uh, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, all the way up to pretty horrific things that probably have made national news. Uh, so, I mean, specific, I've, I've ran so many calls to this point, man, where it's just kind of gotten to the point where not autopilot per se, but I try to move on from, you know, difficult calls. Uh, what I have noticed is that it's definitely not what people might expect or the way it's pitched in, in popular media or in schools. And it's, uh, it's really something that, you know, takes a, a patient and aesthetic person uh, to really to really succeed in this field. Michael, how about describing the area you work in geographically? And you know, I, I assume Maymore has a contract with the, the city or the county uh, to provide the care. Is that correct? Yeah, we're in the we're in like the largest swath of land in, in northern Los Angeles County. It, it incorporate or it it has uh, the Santa Clarita Valley, uh, Palmdale, and Lancaster. You have two population centers. You know, Palmdale, Lancaster, which are about 450,000 people combined. So it's a fairly large suburb type city type environment. Uh, but then you also have large swaths of, you know, rural uh, areas or areas that are, you know, separated from main deployment uh, that sometimes extended ETAs, et cetera. And in terms of the demographic, uh, this is one of the uh, poor areas in Los Angeles County. You've read in the article that, you know, you mentioned earlier by Ava, um, this is the home of sickest and the, and the poorest people in Los Angeles County. So it is not exactly an affluent area, but, uh, you know, it is, it is my home. It's my community, and, you know, it's a pleasure serving it. Well, speaking about Ava, how did the article come about? Yeah, um, it seems like Ava had been reaching out um, looking for, you know, leads to try and tell the story from a more detailed perspective or a more personal perspective. She had noted that, there was a lot of stories out there that just kind of uh, scratched the surface, but they never necessarily dove deep into you know, what life is actually like as an EMS uh, professional or what life is actually like for the front line of the front line in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So she, she was definitely interested in, in sharing that portion and really kind of making it personable for everybody that was reading and also kind of opening this door uh, because a lot of people, you know, they don't really put much thought into it. They just know that if they call 911, there's an ambulance there to help them. And people don't think twice about it. And I think she really wanted to open the doors and have people understand our system and the, the downfalls of that as well. What were your concerns uh, about doing the article? And same thing with your partner, EMT Sanchez. And how did AMR feel about you, you know, you know, talking, I mean, you're honest in that article and 
we're going to get into what you were facing during the pandemic and how things are yeah. today. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, we are a union, and, and I do understand our right in terms of talking to the media and talking to people about our working conditions. So it was really at that angle that I approached, you know, speaking to Ava. We never really violated any company policies, and, and as she's, you know, stated before, she, she simply kind of followed our ambulance around in her own personal vehicle and was kind of this fly on the wall. Uh, but I was able to speak candidly, honestly, because, you know, we have this beautiful thing in this country, the National Labor Relations Act, that, you know, allows people to engage in union activity without fear of retaliation from their employer. And that could, you know, entail uh, speaking to the media about working conditions and about treatment or, you know, general, you know, conditions of, of the profession. What was AMR's reaction? Uh, honestly, they, they kind of, they shot away from it. They didn't really, you know, approach or anything. They, they knew the article came out. I was approached by a couple of supervisors and, and you know, local management personnel. Uh, so they knew it was there. Uh, on a local level, it seemed like they generally agreed or they generally understood. But again, management at, at that level, you know, more so understanding the mechanisms of corporate EMS and kind of just leaving it at that. Um, I wasn't dishonest about anything, and, and my opinions are obviously formed over 11 years of doing this and, and understanding intricately what makes these systems tick and, and what the motive is behind them. So it, it didn't seem like they, they had an issue with that per se. Would they have liked me to do it? Probably not. Uh, could they really have stopped me from you know going to the media given my position and my standing as a union member. How do you think the article helped you and your colleagues? Absolutely. Um, really, the, the foundation of what I was trying to do was down this notion that we, we are unimportant or that, that the public doesn't necessarily find what we do of importance because obviously we're not a fire department or we're not law enforcement. And in the you know current climate or, you know, even post 9-11, nobody really, you know, thinks about us. And, and I feel like AMR has generally, whether intentionally or unintentionally, really used that to their advantage, uh, setting themselves up like stepping stone career or, or a job that doesn't really have any gravitas per se until you've reached the level of firefighter, law enforcement personnel, et cetera. So the, the first purpose that I, that I really approached or that I decided that you know, I should work with Ava was to let my peers know that, you know, the public just doesn't know. And once they do, they understand the importance of us. I wanted everybody, especially in my local, to see public opinion and to then be empowered by that so that we could collectively work to ensure that we can uh, be taken care of to a certain extent or uh, be unleashed per se so that we can take care of the community to the best of our ability. To take us inside when the crisis first started, and let's go back a little bit. Let's let's take a typical day for you at work, and then as the coronavirus started to spread, and you know, Los Angeles got hit pretty hard, your county got hit pretty hard yeah. too. Yeah, well, at, you know, at first it was business as usual pre-pandemic. Uh, we're a pretty busy area up here. We run a 24-hour deployment, so we're one of the, as I understand it, last. Uh, areas with this level of call volume that's still on a 24-hour deployment in private EMS. 
we get ran pretty hard. We're talking 16 to 20 calls a, a day with maybe half of those being transports. But, you know, that, that was kind of our, our normal pre-pandemic. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and I, it seems like what was happening in New York spooked officials in L.A. County, and, and we kind of jumped into uh, this, like, crisis prevention mode, and that really saw transports just plummet and seemed like for a little bit there we were really you know working together and and limiting the transports and limiting exposure and encouraging people to isolate or self-quarantine or wear a mask etc and then i think we let off the we let, we let off the brakes too soon or we let off the gas too soon and uh throughout the country at that moment we started relaxing a lot of regulations during the summer uh and then as the holidays approached later in the year we just had this explosion that we were, you know, really kind of caught off guard for. Uh, we had gone through May and April of that year uh, thinking that, you know, we had kept it under control or that we had limited or flattened the curve, as they were saying back then, and that things would be okay. And then we were mistaken. And uh, it got to the point where I was surprised that we even made it through, especially in this private EMS portion of Los Angeles County. Uh, surprised we even made it through it. Oh, throughout the country, I'm pretty sure in your area too, the hospitals were probably being overrun with patients. People were still calling 911. They didn't know, especially in the early in the pandemic, you know, what was really going on. What was it like when you first were exposed to a patient that had COVID and you took them to the hospital? Can you take us inside the ambulance? Well, my, my first actual COVID patient, COVID positive confirmed, was actually, unfortunately, a full arrest. Um, and it was in a back house that had been, I guess, converted into this quarantining area for a family member of, of a resident. And uh, the first experience was really just uh, doing CPR on somebody, on a gentleman, an elderly gentleman, for, you know, 25 to 30 minutes. And uh, at that point, it became real. Uh, hey, there's somebody that has passed away right in front of me. I had always understood the importance of of COVID and the seriousness had we not kept it under control, but that was really the first uh, time where I felt fearful, not only for the community, for myself, and also for patients that would eventually contract this. And um, that was definitely a, a, a wake-up call. I thought I was going to have COVID after working this, this guy up because it's kind of a, a hot and sweaty environment, and it's uh, very intense. And uh, I think the seal on my N95 was solid because of the, the humidity in the room, et cetera. So it was definitely scary, but also eye-opening. And I think from that point forward, we all started understanding that this is something that we need to get ahead of and combating the misinformation and the, you know, the general you know, lack of willpower amongst EMS was uh, difficult. You arrived at a hospital. They were being overrun with patients, both not non-COVID and probably COVID. How were you greeted? Uh, how was that transition from, from your gurney to the hospital bed? Um, in this area, we only have two hospitals. So we are already incredibly underserved. You take an area this size and put it anywhere else in Los Angeles County, you probably have a multitude of hospitals at your, at your disposal to, to kind of uh, level out the, the impact. So we were already operating at a you know, resource disadvantage, seeing as we only had two hospitals. 
Uh, one is a very staunch, you know, private entity run by United Health Services, and the other one is a, you know, local regional hospital uh, that's funded by property taxes in the area. So watching how both of those hospitals dealt with the situation, uh, you obviously had the publicly funded hospital kind of uh, flex their power in terms of their 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 resource availability, uh, and then you had the complete opposite at the privately run hospital where you could see that they were attempting to lessen the financial blow and that translated into quality of care being lowered for, for patients in that area. Um, both hospitals were intense and, and frankly insane, but you could see, you could really definitely tell a difference between, between both facilities. The title of the article, The Broken Front Line, can you give us some elements of what was broken? Yeah, it, uh, it was, I would say, a mixture of the way our healthcare system prioritizes profit and trying to balance the profit incentive with the, you know, care incentive. And you, you saw that the lack of wanting to uh, spend resources early on prior to the federal assistance uh, really kind of held us back, and it actually exacerbated the situation to a certain extent, whereas had we prepared or, or had there been enough resources early on, we might have been able to, to lessen the blow. But you had a lot of staffing issues. You had not only that, but you had a lot of nurses that were uh, chasing very lucrative contracts in other areas of the county or the, of the state or the, you know, the country that kind of left these traditionally lower paying areas. Um, so because of that, you had this, in, this incredible shortage of uh, providers at the hospital. So I saw that that as being broken. Then not only that, but you had this, this overrun and this lack of uh, public outreach that really scared the public, but also let them, left them in kind of like a, a daze of confusion, not understanding something as simple as the difference between what, an, what antibiotics can do for bacteria versus what they can't do for a virus or feeling that the you know hospital has all the answers to your illness uh, etc you know so there, there's a lot of that and it just felt like there were so many layers that were were broken and and this was really you know pushing at at all the broken parts of the foundation and, and that was just incredibly frustrating to deal with and how did you deal with that frustration yeah <laughs> i i don't know to be honest um it was at first it was difficult uh trying to balance my inherent idealism with reality and then later it was simply accepting the reality and kind of being defeated by it and then later it was invigorating to a certain extent where now I, then i decided to you know pour all i had into it uh, because I, I realized that this might be an opportunity to, to, to really push for changes or to really flex our, our muscles, so to speak, as you know, a labor organization and, and how we interacted with the company and, and how our caregivers were treated and, and what our strengths could be when we, when we interface with the public, uh, really taking public education you know, into, into, uh, into consideration and Know, really trying to make a difference despite you know our, our employers apparent unwillingness to to try and hack it directly has anything changed regarding that um, there there have been 
some changes per se, but I, I feel like at this point, you know, we're we're just kind of getting back to it. It seemed like there was never really a desire to change, more so a desire to just weather the storm and hope for assistance. And you know, we saw that in the Provider Relief Act that was attached to you know the COVID legislation that was passed by Congress, et cetera. But in terms of any long-term changes that I foresee or or that I'm seeing now. Um, Absolutely not. We're, we're just kind of slowly getting back to normal. Well, being the union president, what added pressure was there for you? And how did you handle that? And can you talk about, I assume you'd have uh, your union uh, brothers and sisters coming to you asking for advice uh, just on COVID and morale. How'd you deal with all that? Definitely. It was, uh, it was long hours of uh, researching legislation and piggyback legislation at a state level, et cetera, and trying to really educate myself and then arming my, my members with the knowledge and then also encouraging them. The pandemic really kind of shook a lot of people in their stability or their, their fear of financial instability, I'll say it like that. And people were afraid to kind of just rattle the boat because they almost found themselves thankful that they were still working. And I, I felt like that was just the wrong approach to have, especially in this kind of situation. So I, I wanted to arm them and then also encourage them that, hey, you know, you have the support of, of the federal government at this point, you have the support of, you know, the state legislator, and you really have the public behind you. So this is the moment to look after yourself as well. And really just encouraging everyone to do that. I mean, I, I, I went as far as doing, you know, weekly, you know, live streams on our, on our little Facebook group, you know, that has the eyes and ears of 450 of my members and, and really kind of just walking everyone through the process of uh, making sure that you're still paid while on quarantine or making sure that the company is doing what they need to do to, to protect you and your family when you, when you go home. And uh, really just arming everyone was what I spent most of my time doing. And, and that was a way for me to feel like I was able to contribute uh, to at least a portion of the EMS system, which I'm so passionate about. And that's the, you know, the care, the caregiver side. Did you see a lot of your colleagues resign? Yeah, I, we, I saw a couple of, of, of really good folks just kind of call it quits, not necessarily because they felt unsupported or they felt like um, they couldn't do it, but more so because it was they, they were already kind of on their last leg in terms of morale and in terms of how corporate EMS kind of approaches what they do. And uh, COVID was kind of the last straw for them. I had a, a great friend of mine, uh, Johnny Medesian, who, you know, I always admired. And he, he kind of just decided that that was it and that he could no longer do it. Although he was one of those people that seemed passionate about EMS and passionate about doing the right thing for the community. How are you doing, and how is your partner doing? I'm doing fine. I'm 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 uh, I'm okay. I'm still kind of involved in in a lot of the union stuff, and I'm still trying to not take advantage per se, but really just try to continue the fight so that we're more prepared in the future should anything happen. Uh, my partner Alex, unfortunately, um, will be leaving AMR, or I would say reducing herself to to part time, and uh, you know seeking out other lines of work it seems like uh she might be going to the hospital side of things and and she also uh you know took on uh the veterinary side of healthcare uh because she still wants to use her knowledge but it, it seems like she can no longer 
uh, sustain doing it for the public. One final question. What would you change? If you had some things you wanted to change after going through this horrific crisis, are there anything that you would do differently? Uh, that I would do differently or yes. that I would like seeing changed? Well, both. You know, really, and, and I want to preface this with, you know, I, I grew up in a conservative area, you know, and, and uh, without getting, you know, too political, I, I do feel like the system in and of itself uh, needs to be, you know, under the control of the public in every, in every factor, or, or at least the voter, uh, because the, the system that has constructed right now, although it has a public component in the fire department, uh, you you really have this underlying profit motive from the the transport side of it, um, and I don't know if you know the structure of LA County, but you have the fire department respond as uh, an ALS resource and as manpower, and with that response, you also have a ambulance respond, a private ambulance as a BLS resource and as a transportation resource. And then on scene, we determine, you know, whether the patient meets the criteria necessary for, you know, public involvement, as in, you know, ALS, fire resources following us or going with us. And if not, it's, uh, it's kind of left at the BLS level. So that's the structure of our current system. And, um, you know, I, I feel like that's broken. I feel like it creates a kind of this perverse incentive for transport and uh, doesn't do what it should be doing or doesn't do what it does in other parts of the country, which is providing an essential service for the public when they need it, but also a service that benefits the public when they need it. And they, without, again, without getting too political, I, I think, and I, I touched on it you know, briefly in the article with, with Ava, is that the, the whole system needs to be overhauled. Private ambulances, uh, they should no longer be structured in the way they do. And, and if they are, they need to be partnership between the public and, and the private sector to a certain extent that allows the you know the public to have more control over a community resource much like the fire department and and, and law enforcement right now especially in in los angeles county have a lot of people that are in ems frankly because it's a prerequisite to become a fire you know a firefighter and um, do people really want to you know do this job or are they doing it uh, because they know they need to before they're even considered for a firefighter position, which is very lucrative in Los Angeles County. So I would like to see you know, that change to the extent where we're able to attract people that are truly in the job because they enjoy emergency medicine or pre-hospital care. They're not necessarily doing it as part of these paces that they have to take you know, in order to get to a different destination. I think EMS should be the destination. And I think that when, it, when it's treated that way, then caregivers and the public will ultimately benefit. Well, Michael, I appreciate you joining me on my podcast. Have a safe and happy summer. Absolutely. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.